to the Swish Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm also Jake. And today we have a really, really special episode. Today we have Mike Doc Emmerich on the podcast, a former lead NHL play-by-play announcer and Hall of Famer. What's going on, Doc? And thank you for joining the podcast. Well, Jake C., it's good to hear from you. And uh, I admire you guys for your podcast and how hard you're working on it. And I remember uh, when I was your age, how many older people have used that phrase before, uh, when I didn't have the luxury of such things as podcasts and computers and things to do that. But you have a tremendous outlet for your interest in broadcasting, and I hope you have as much fun with your career as I had with mine. I'm fine here. I'm in eastern Michigan, about an hour north of Detroit, anticipating the new year, enjoying watching hockey. Uh, even though several games have been postponed, they're going to get made up, so I'll get my money's worth on my subscription for for the um, uh, cable package that I have with all the games. Also looking forward to watching the Winter Classic and seeing everyone shiver in minus five temperatures in Minnesota on January 1st. Sounds great. We're going to hop right into our first question, which was, growing up, were you always interested in sports? Yes, uh, Jake W. I was um, probably from the time that I could uh, run, which I understand was around two, maybe three. Although I had, was a little more coordinated at three than two, uh, I I watched baseball on television, and these were the infant days of television. It was a long time ago, over seventy years ago. Um, and we played baseball in the yard and basketball because I grew up in Indiana. We played basketball in the wintertime and occasionally football in the fall. No hockey, of course, because there were no ponds there and there was no real interest in hockey in our area. But uh, I realized that I probably didn't have future as an athlete. Um, and so I started listening to games on the radio constantly during the summer and in the winter it would be basketball and in the summer it would be baseball and decided uh, when I was a little younger than you guys at age nine that that's what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until age 14 that my interest shifted from baseball to hockey and that came from seeing my first game live. I think that's probably what hooks a lot of people is seeing a game live. When you were younger, did you have any professional sports team, like favorite professional sports teams? Yeah, Jake, see, I, I loved the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I still do, and that's probably the only sports team that I stayed with. Uh, in the NFL, we had the Chicago Bears, which were close to us. They played at Wrigley Field back in those days, and they were pretty good. Uh, there were, they were always falling short of the Green Bay Packers or the Baltimore Colts, seemingly, but they were a pretty good team. But as time passed, I lost interest in, in the NFL, and especially when I started working in hockey. Uh, the only hockey team that I followed is one that I still do and cheer for, the Fort Wayne Comets. They are currently in the ECHL. Uh, I did not have any NHL teams because that uh, exposure was nowhere near where we were. And in basketball, it was mostly high school teams that were in our area that I followed. Uh, there was an NBA, although it wasn't its infancy, and in nearby Fort Wayne there was a team called the Pistons before they moved to Detroit, but I think baseball was the only lasting thing that I stuck with, and uh, radio won me over to the Pittsburgh Pirates a long way from Indiana, but 50,000 watts of KDKA radio did it for me. And they had an announcer named Bob Prince who was colorful and cheered for the team. And so I followed that. 
So you're one of the most respected and most successful sportscasters probably of all time. But, but growing up, were there any other reporters that you admired when you, and liked to hear? Well, yes. Um, I, you know, and, and it's interesting because uh, I was a Pirate fan and I always liked a guy that was partial to my team. And I was not really a partial announcer when I when I got to working. But uh, I really liked Bob Prince. There was um, a, a man who was rarely ever mentioned who was a Chicago Cubs announcer named Jack Quinlan because he was killed in a car accident at a very young age. Later on, um, you know, Jack Brickhouse and Harry Carey and a lot of other legendary Cubs announcers came along. But Jack was exciting, even though the Cubs were terrible at the time. He was an exciting announcer. And uh, I think, too... um, in hockey, Danny Gallivan, who was the voice of Hockey Night in Canada, especially out of Montreal during the Canadians' glory days, those, those would be some. So you mentioned before you originally wanted to be a baseball broadcaster, but when you were 14, you decided you liked hockey more. So what kind of made you, what kind of drew you to hockey over like baseball or basketball? Well, it was seeing that first game, and it was in Fort Wayne. It was the team that I still cheer for today, and uh, Fort Wayne was about 40 miles from us. And I had seen a little bit of hockey on television because the year was 1960, and that was the year that the United States won a gold medal at the Olympics in uh, Squaw Valley. And 20 years later, of course, they won at Lake Placid, and those were the those were the two big gold medal victories by the United States in my lifetime. And uh, I got a chance to see some games on TV. We had a team in Fort Wayne that arrived in 1952 and is still there to this day. And so I pestered my parents enough that they took me to a live game. And seeing the, the brilliance of the colors of the uniform and seeing the collisions that took place, and uh, the wire fences that were above the boards in the Zamboni, that, and there was just one that went back and forth. And the whole, I guess the whole visual and sensory, sensory things that occurred in one night, the organ that would play and sort of mock out the visiting team and all of that made it quite an entertainment thing for me. But I thought, gosh, if I could ever get in free to the games, and that's the main thing that I really wanted to do was to not have to pay to get in. And then if I could share that with other people, gosh, what a great way that would be to make a living. And fortunately for me, it took a few years, but I got to do what I wanted. So what then led to your decision to attend Manchester and Miami Miami University for college and then Bowling Green for graduate school? Uh, it's, it's sort of a, an odd route. Um, I wound up getting a scholarship to Butler University for uh, four years, but after the first semester I left because there wasn't going to be the opportunity for sure to broadcast sports there. There were only a couple of upperclassmen seniors that got to do the Butler Bulldogs football and basketball games. And they were the same guys. And I thought, gee, this is a large class I'm in and I'm going to go four years here maybe and never get a chance. Um, I had done some football and basketball back in my hometown commercially on a local radio station and been paid for it. And I thought, I I probably will get a good education here. But I transferred to a school nearby, and that was Manchester that you mentioned, and was able to basically walk on and broadcast along with another uh, of the students the Manchester football and basketball games for four years. I didn't have any TV experience, 
So in my senior year at Manchester, I applied for one year at graduate school at, at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, in southwest Ohio, and uh, was one of the lucky recipients of a scholarship and a teaching assistantship there. So I spent one year there and got a chance to really get my feet into professional hockey because there was a team in Dayton about an hour away, and I had a credential from the Miami University radio station that I now could cover the games and get in free. Well, I, I applied to all the professional teams that moved because uh, I'd sit up in, in the arena and broadcast the game to myself on a recorder and sent those tapes out, but remarkably nobody wanted somebody with no experience. So I needed a job, and I got one in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, teaching two years at Geneva College. And after two years of that, thinking that maybe hockey announcing wasn't going to work out uh, the way that you can make another $600 a year teaching college is to get the doctoral degree and that seemed like the right thing to do well Bowling Green had a campus station that covered the hockey games and so uh, I was told that if I came there and accepted their teaching assistantship I could do the second period of the Falcon games because a student always did that. Well, that made up my mind for, him, for me. And after two years there, uh, I had the coursework done for the doctoral degree and also had a tape uh, off of an air check and sent that out and got my first job in professional hockey in Port Huron, Michigan. So hockey was the motivator. In answer to your question, Jake, hockey was the motivator for just about everything that I did. So after that whole like college journey, I would say you like started broadcasting the IHL and then the AHL, and then you ultimately went to the NHL and did, and you covered teams like the Flyers and the Devils. So what was that whole process like? Well, it was nothing but fun. Um, I suppose there are people listening to this podcast who would say, well, I can't be that good every day. Well, most days it was. Uh, so in answer to your question, what was it like? It was a joy. And I always encourage people your age to, uh, if this is what you'd like to do, is to really dedicate yourself to it and don't quit. Um, even though there may be days that aren't good or you may be going for a job that you don't get and somebody else does, keep trying and, and don't give up. It, it was wonderful because in, in the case of hockey, you are working with people who never wanted to do anything else in their life than this. And so even though they might be in a scoring slump or something else, they are usually coming to work with a good attitude and are cheerful. And most everybody else that you run into around the arena is the same way. And if you come with uh, an attitude that's positive too, it's amazing how many friends you can make over a period of time, and it's largely a friendly atmosphere in the first place. So uh, that's what it's like, and uh, that's why I encourage guys like you to go after it. So what do you used to do to prepare before a game that you were going to commentate for? Well, it usually took about eight hours, Jake W. Um, the night before is when you would get all the statistics together because usually with NHL games on NBC, the teams didn't play the day before. Once in a while, you'd get a situation where they play back-to-back. -back, but most times, 
if they played at all, it would be in the afternoon because our telecasts were usually on Sunday afternoon, sometimes on, on nights. But um, so I would spend the time getting the updated statistics entered on my scorecard for the next day. And that saved me doing it the next day. And then if you if it was a night game, let's say the game starts at seven, um, the practices are 1030 for the home team, 1130 for the visitors. So at 1030, you stay in the stands and you watch and then you usually get time to talk to one or two players from uh, the home team. And then after you get to talk to the coach, then you go back out and repeat the same scenario with the visiting team. And then in the afternoon, uh, I always stayed in the arena, but most everybody else would go back to the hotel and, and uh, of course, get changed over. I brought the change of clothes with me. But uh, in the afternoon, you would enter those notes on your card and kind of pull things together. It's not like you structured what you said, but you would have several things in mind in case you got a chance to use them. And on a good night, I would use maybe 10 to 15% of what I had. So you always had carryover material for another game because don't forget, I was working with two other people who were there for a reason. They had something to contribute to. There was one station between the benches who would provide information he was seeing from down there as well as overhearing conversations. And there was my analyst up next to me who would be sizing up the game and dealing with all the replays, which normally came up when play stopped. So uh, it was not, and I was not in any position where I really wanted to dominate the show or get all my stuff in. Uh, There were other people that you had to share with, and that was, that was the way it was to be. So you've had a very, very successful, you had a very, very successful career. You won many awards such as the Sports Illustrated Sportscast of the Year, nine Emmy Awards, and eventually being elected into the Hall of Fame. So what were all, what were like all those accomplishments like for you, knowing you were very successful and what your dream was? Well, it's nice of you to say, Jake. See, I, I, I think probably the, the greatest success that anybody has that travels so much over such a long period of time and, and gets all these awards is uh, a marriage of 43 years that continues on afterwards because it takes a very understanding person like my wife, Joyce, to have all these years. I figured up when we, when we reached 40 years of marriage, I, I figured that she had been pretty much on her own, about 5,000 total nights. That's a lot of time to be alone. Now, we have creatures, uh, horses and dogs, and she has family. And But that's also a lot of time to just be there watching movies and tending to creatures at night. And it can be a very boring thing. So we used to put X's on the calendar, on an analog calendar, on nights that I would be home and those would be date nights. We'd go to dinner or go to a movie or something. I was much better versed in movies at one time than I am now. So maybe we need to get that going again. So what do you believe is the best moment you've ever commentated and broadcasted live? Well, um, Jake W., I think, uh, one of them that stands out in my mind, I don't know if it was the best, uh, I don't evaluate my own broadcast that much in terms of history or anything else. I leave that to other people. But one that I constantly remember as being a great day for the sport was 
the gold medal game in 2010 in Vancouver between the U.S. and Canada because I think it epitomized the best that the sport of hockey has to offer. First of all, the gold medal game had the best athletes that were healthy and possible to play from Canada and the United States. Then it had a highly competitive game. Ryan Miller was tremendous in goal for the United States and tested a lot. And it had a lot riding on it because it was being played in Canada. And the game, of course, was invented in Canada. So there was a lot riding on it for the for the uh, home fans. And it got to the last minute, and Canada was ahead by one goal. So the goaltender was pulled, and Zach Parisi scored for the United States in the last half minute. And so it was going to overtime. And so there was that delightful uncertainty as the Zamboni went back and forth, and we had an intermission before the overtime began. Who's going to get the winner? And there are going to be medals handed out and gold to one team and silver to another. And uh, as it turned out, Sidney Crosby scored on Miller. After the game was over, we carried interviews with both Miller and Crosby. And they were both extremely classy. And Miller, despite defeat, said some wonderful things about competing and about about the whole process. And it made you feel good that if we had to have two athletes on a day when there were so many millions of people watching hockey that normally did not because the closing ceremony was not really that long from going on the air either. So we had a lot of people that just had the TV on that afternoon and then learned it was an overtime game. I don't think we could have had two better representatives from our sport, one from each country, the winner and the loser, who would have said more good things about not only the sport, but spoke well for the kind of athletes who play it than what we had that day. And that's why it stands out in my mind. So what ultimately led you to retire last year in 2020? I'm sorry? What eventually like led to you deciding to retire last year? Oh, um, JC, it was a lot of round numbers. Uh, I had I had been uh, doing NHL games for 40 years. I'd been covering hockey straight through for 50, counting the days at Bowling Green, and one year in Beaver Falls covering the Pittsburgh Penguins for an evening newspaper for free. And you add all that up, it came to 50, and it was 60 years since I saw my first game. And um, I don't think COVID had a lot to do with it, but at the end of the second round of the bubble playoff, the one that uh, was then shifting to Edmonton for the conference final and the Stanley Cup final, um, everyone was headed out there, and I had the luxury of remaining at home uh, where they had special equipment designed to sync up the picture with my uh, commentary, and I was able to remain home and remain safe and um, and to do the Olympics, and I thought... I'm healthy. My wife is healthy. This seems like a perfect time for me to finish a long career while we still have time to do some things that we might want to do. Now, mind you, COVID and um, and the risk factors in doing some things for our age group has prevented us from doing some travel. But we did a lot of travel during the time that I was working, too. So we don't really feel like that we've been cheated along the way. But the other side of it is that uh, it seemed like just the right time and to um, and to take advantage of some healthy years that we had ahead of us. 
So this could be a quick little answer. Who do you think is going to win the entire NHL this year? Uh, I will answer that if you if you two guys will give me an answer too, because uh, at this point we aren't even halfway through the season, and uh, you can roll a, roll the dice and have anybody come out and 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 you can you can look intelligent by calling it. I'm going to say that Tampa Bay makes it three straight. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you based off they have the best record so far and the most points. So I'm going to say they're going to win it too. I think the fact that they've done it with no Kucher off and Point being hurt and that they've uh, led their division and in some cases led the league this at, at this point in the season is very impressive. And they, you know, they have, they lost some players over the summertime, too. But anyway, uh, Jake, see, I didn't hear you. So if I told you before the season, I would have taken my Islanders, but they're a bottom five team in the league, really unexpected. So I'm probably going to stick with the Tampa, too. Okay, well, we're unified on Tampa, and uh, so that means we're probably all going to be wrong. But the good thing is that you could say just about anybody uh, and you'd have a chance. As the L.A. Kings proved in 2012 and and really, I guess, in 2014, but more so in 2012, all you got to do is get in. And if you get in, you're one of 16, and you can knock everybody off and win the championship. So it'll be fun, that's for sure. And I think we're we're taking the right measures to get there safely. With no Olympic competition, that'll give them two and a half weeks to schedule some of these games that they had to postpone. So what is some important advice you would give up and coming people in the industry who want to become like big broadcasters like you are? Uh, the, the number one thing is not to quit because there is a lot of rejection in this line of work. It's like wanting to be the lead actor on Broadway or, or any job that winds up uh, where, where a lot of people want uh, and only one person gets it. Um, you, you don't get all the jobs that you want and you just learn from it and keep trying. So believe in your skills. Um, some of the best advice I ever got was from an announcer in Fort Wayne that when I was a college student, I went over and interviewed him. He said, uh, don't memorize statistics, anything that you can have written down, don't memorize it. Uh, just use statistics that are written down because they change all the time. Read anything you can get a hold of, and what's more, read out loud because it's good practice. Most all of us have to be sports readers at some time as well as play-by-play or color announcers who react to what they see. There are times that we have to read, and it also trains your voice if you read out loud. Other Another thing that I was told and I tried to do was to take advantage of any opportunity to make mistakes. For example, in high school, they needed a public address announcer to read the starting lineups for the basketball games. So when I was a sophomore, I accepted the job. And yeah, did I get them all right? No, not perfect, but I got a lot more right near the end of the season than I did at the start. And was it embarrassing when you make a mistake? Yeah, you get annoyed, but you're better for it. And the more of those opportunities that you take to do those kinds of things, it just helps you in the long run because you've experienced failure before. Failure is a strong word, but you've made mistakes before. And the more mistakes you make early, 
the less that you tend to make later on. So you're just helping yourself with more experience. So we're going to ask you two final quick little questions, and Jake sees it ask the first one. So what is your favorite thing about being live on air? Uh, what is my favorite thing? I'm sorry, Jake. See, one more time. What's your favorite thing about being live on the air? Oh, about being live on the air? Um, the favorite thing is also the greatest disadvantage. You only get one shot at it. Uh, the great sportscaster Al Michaels uh, spoke at uh, the Emmy Awards one year. He was given the Lifetime Achievement Award, and he said, this is not Hollywood. We don't get 25 takes. We only get one. And that is the challenge of sports broadcasting is we only get one shot and it's live and it goes out there and it can always come back to haunt you if you don't get it right. But when you do get it right, there is a great satisfaction in doing that. And uh, I've not been perfect in anything that I've done, but I've also had some times when I left the booth saying, you know, that was a thrilling game. And I don't think I got in the way too much. And our last question for you, Mike, is who do you think is your favorite hockey player of all time? Gordy Howe. Um, second would be Bobby Orr, and three would be Wayne Gretzky, and a 3B would be Mario Lemieux. And here are the reasons. The sport when I was your age was a different sport than what you are seeing now. It was not as fast the players were not as big. As a matter of fact, the average size now is 6'1", 201 pounds, somewhere in there. And the average size back then was about 5'10", maybe 185. So the players were smaller. Uh, skating had not become the fine skill that it is now, and so the games weren't nearly as fast. But they were tougher, and they required um, a much different kind of courage than they do today. The courage today is in blocking shots and in driving to the net. Back then, the courage was to take the punishment necessary to go into the corners because there was Gordy Howe with his elbows coming at you. There were more fights back then, and so players had to be either skilled at fighting or at least tolerant in how to get through it. Uh, the game was a, a much rougher game, played almost exclusively by Canadians. In 1970, there were only seven non-Canadians in the NHL, and they were all from the U.S. So our game is, in 50 years, the game has changed markedly now to where so many countries are represented. There were uh, 20 countries represented when we had the bubble playoff of 24 teams two years ago. Uh, that's how widespread our, our game is now. But Gordy Howe epitomized to me the greatness of hockey of that time when I was learning to love it. And that was the skill necessary to score goals to be able to deal out and take punishment, the ability to fight if necessary, and the gentle ambassadorship that he had off the ice. Bobby Orr was just a magnificent defenseman. I never got a chance to broadcast one of his games, which I had. Uh, Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux were, were scoring machines of the 1980s and 90s. And Mario uh, would have probably eclipsed a lot of the records in the league had he not had cancer and had he not had back problems. But he was different from Wayne in that he was not with a prosperous franchise. He had to rescue the Pittsburgh franchise from bankruptcy and bring it back to life. 
And eventually uh, he did sell it at a great profit just within the last month or so. So I'm happy for him for that. So that's actually going to wrap up our interview with you, Doc. Thank you so, so much for joining us. This was a blast, and we hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you guys, and I wish you well as you embark on careers in broadcasting. Happy New Year. You too. Thank you. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was such a fun one, and we'll see you in the next one.